Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. On today's show, we'll be reviewing the movie The Whale. Uh, But first, some announcements. So on the last episode, we announced the Not Quite Right prize for Flash Fiction, running from the 14th to the 16th of July. 600 words. We'll have two prompts and one anti-prompt and a $300 prize. We've already got some people signing up. So if you'd like to join in, you can sign up now as well. You just have to head to the website, notquiterightpodcast.com. And you'll see a, a little box there that you can pop your email address. And that means you won't miss any updates and uh, you'll be notified when the competition launches. Should be fun being on the other side for once. You know how I love to judge. (laughs) (laughs) This is a life goal here. Exactly. No, but seriously, I'm I'm excited. I think um, both of us love to see creativity and, you know, celebrate it. So even if you're not super confident with your writing yet, if you're new to it, even if you've never entered a competition before, we'd really encourage you. Flash fiction really lends itself to experimentation. Mm. You don't really need any particular skills. Like it helps, obviously, um, but... I think you might surprise yourself sometimes because it's it really does leave it open for you to just attack it however you like. Yep. So as Amanda said, just head over to the website, notquiterightpodcast.com to find out more. And the other piece of news is that we will be covering the Words on the Waves Writers Festival, which is held in Umina on the New South Wales Central Coast in Australia this year. Uh, so that'll be from May 31st to June the 5th this year. Uh, So if you're in the area and you're thinking of checking it out, do come down. Yeah, we'd love to see you there. I'm really looking forward to interviewing some of the authors and just finding out a bit more maybe about their process Mm -hmm. and about what inspires them. And I'm looking forward to getting inspired myself too, because I think writers' festivals really have that effect on me. So Yeah, I haven't been to a writers' festival before, so this will be new for me. Yeah, right. I've been to a couple been to the Sydney Writers Festival and uh, the Kids and YA Festival mm-hmm. run by Writing New South Wales, which I think happens every two years. And you really do come away sort of buzzing, I think. Yeah. Just You often get to hear other writers speak, which can be really interesting. You're obviously exposed to a lot of new different types of writing, things that you might not have otherwise seen. And you're around just like-minded people, mm. which I think is the main thing. Talking about that thing that you love, you know, so. Yeah, just being in that environment where writing is not just some side hobby or something that you do kind of in a room by yourself exactly. underground. Exactly. It's such a, like, we've found a way to make it social for ourselves, mm. but it can be quite a solitary thing, either a hobby, a career or pastime, whatever you, it may be for you. Writing can be so lonely. And so it's really nice to get out with other like-minded people. I think it's a pretty common experience for writers. And I saw someone posting this on Twitter just the other day about how, you know, they'd written a book and their partner hadn't even read it. And I think that's the kind of thing that you face. You face people who don't really understand or appreciate, you know, your passion. And so when you can get out there and share it with people who do get it, I think that can be quite refreshing. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, really get you motivated to keep going as well. For sure. So, Words on the Waves, uh, you can find out more information at wordsonthewaves.com.au. And if you happen to be there, just look around for um, Amanda and I, and we'll see you there. So, on the subject of the Not Quite Right Prize for Flash Fiction, one of the unique features of this competition is that we'll have an anti-prompt. 
not really the opposite of a writing prompt, but it is breaking one of the rules of writing. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about what that means because you might think that breaking one of the rules of writing is just not something you want to do. And by asking you to break one of the rules of writing, we're asking you to Fail. write a bad, <laughs> a bad story. And that's not what we want to do. We want to encourage creativity. And uh, I think both of us, we feel that sometimes the rules of writing need to be broken. That's I don't right. know if, if we both feel that way, but no, I definitely no, I do. do. No, I do. So we wanted to give some examples and these won't necessarily be the actual rules that we'll be asking you to break in the anti-prompt for the Not Quite Right Prize, uh, but it should give you an idea of what we're going for. Mm. So one of the common pieces of writing advice, commonly repeated writing advice that's given. And I know Stephen King's big on this one. Uh, and that's avoiding adverbs. Yes. Uh, and maybe not even just avoiding adverbs, but like expunging all adverbs from your writing mm. entirely. And so do you want to explain what an adverb is for the people who, like me, were failed by the education system and not taught <laughs> yeah. proper grammar? <laughs> so an adverb is a is a word that modifies a verb. Yeah. So, so what's if, a verb? <laughs> it is a doing word. It's a doing so, word. So if you are walking, uh, walk would be the verb. And if you're walking slowly, slowly is the adverb that... Yeah. Um, modifies the verb. So a lot of adverbs end in L-Y. Yeah. I think it was one of the Spanish authors, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, talked about adverbs sounding particularly harsh in Spanish because it ends in mente. Okay. And it's it's just that same repeating mente, mm. mente, mente, no matter what kind of root that you have to Interesting. the word. Whereas and L-Y is just a bit more of a nothing. Like sorry, yeah. two, two whole syllables you're devoting mm. to it in Spanish. So in other languages, that can be even more of a harsh thing. Mm. But adverbs aren't always L-Y words. An example might be something that modifies the time that you're doing it, like soon yep. or today or always. This one's a bit more rare, I guess, where the word hard so you can fight hard, yep. for example, yep. uh, whereas you wouldn't say fight hardly because yep, hardly has right. a different meaning. Yep. You could say that you are working hard or are you hardly working? Ah, very good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think um, typically we think of them as the L-Y words. It's sort of easier that way, mm. but certainly you can find examples that yep. don't end in L-Y. Yeah, and I think the the recommendation to avoid adverbs definitely comes from the right place, and and the theory behind it is that you should be choosing a verb that you know is much stronger that describes what you're doing uh, much more clearly and and I guess forcefully mm. rather than relying on a weak verb and trying to prop it up with a with an adverb. Mm. Um, so you know, in the example of uh, he he walked slowly. You might want to say he, I don't know, he meandered or, or he ambled. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you want to find, in the interest of, I guess, being succinct and direct, you want to be able to find that uh, that right verb. And I think it is something that when you know this rule and you've learned to apply it, you can see it when yep. it's not followed. You can see it. And it you do see a distinction between an experienced writer and an inexperienced writer, I feel. For example, in some of the writing competitions I've entered where I've seen other people's entries, I do find that some of the weaker entries often are peppered with these adverbs yeah. and it probably is one of the reasons why they are weaker, that the piece doesn't feel as, I guess, compelling. And so it is a, definitely a rule that helps and I think if you are aware of it, yeah. you can see how instantly you can improve your writing by just describing the action better. Yeah. instead of relying on these adverbs to sort of do the work for you. But I think we can probably both agree, and probably every writer would agree, 
that you need you need them sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's just you can go too far the other way sometimes. You know what I yeah. mean? Like when you could just say something clearly, like I just did, yeah. uh, and you don't need to yeah. overdo it because that becomes distracting. Now, some writers have like a zero tolerance policy for adverbs and they will kind of go back and make sure they get rid of every single one, uh, maybe for a philosophical reason. I don't think that's the right approach. For, for me, this rule is, it's like a second draft rule. Mm. So when you write first up, you are going to come up with things like speaking slowly or whatever it happens mm. to be. And when you do your second draft, you might think, well, how can I rephrase that to be to be more clear, more direct? But there are definitely times when the verb-adverb combo is just going to be the better way to say it. That's I right. mean, verbs can sometimes just not contain enough information to describe it as accurately as you want to. Or it's just the way you would say it. It's the way you, you would know, naturally say it. It's just the it, phrasing yeah. that sounds more natural. Or if it's in dialogue too. I mean, mm. that you've got to remember that as well, that of course we use these words all the time sure. when we're speaking. So, and, you know, potentially by not doing that, you might sound too formal. I think a really skilled writer would know the times when it's appropriate to use them and when it's not. I certainly believe that this rule is a helpful one and Mm. I would go through an item that I've written, go back through it and do a find, like a a word find just on the L-Y and look for those words and make the decision, do I keep it or not? Yeah, it's it's a good rule of thumb um, if you want to improve your writing to be conscious of, Mm. but absolutely not a hard and fast rule. And I think it's it's very important in flash fiction and microfiction mm. in particular because you have so few words already yep. that you don't want to waste any on this stuff. And yep. that's a really good way to save words often. You know, if you can go back through and get rid of these things and and be more clear and evoke more. I mean, there's a big difference between walked slowly and meandered, mm-hmm. you know, and to me one of them is more visual. You know, I can picture meandered a bit more than I can walk slowly because it's a bit too vague. Mm. And so you can have fun with it too. And you can use that to build character. You know, you would choose strong verbs that reflect the character that you're describing or the setting. And I think that you can do that more effectively if you're choosing these strong verbs that are a bit more unique than if you're just speaking more generally using adverbs. But even in longer pieces, even in a novel, it's more evocative if you can choose a word that really expresses what you're trying to show. It's it's really funny you say that because now I'm thinking about another rule of writing and that's to always use the word said, mm. right? And being a verb mm-hmm. and two things. One is there are other verbs that can describe um, people saying It's actually saying a really things. good counterpoint yeah. because, yeah, it's the exact opposite advice right. basically. So the, the rule here, inverted commas, is that when you're writing dialogue for a character – that you should always use the word said afterwards. So he said, she said, Jenny said, whatever it is, as opposed to uh, Jenny. Ejaculated. Jenny- <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Jenny can ejaculate. Um, so, yeah, the rule is that when you're writing dialogue that you should always just keep it simple and say he said, she said, And the reason that advice is given is because other words, like the bit more colourful verbs that you could use there. They can be distracting. They're totally distracting. And I guess in that case, it's the opposite advice because we want said to disappear. Mm. It's literally just there most of the time to make it clear who's speaking. That's the only job of it. And I think that's a really good piece of advice as well. And again, something that would very clearly differentiate between 
someone who's coming at writing for the first time and someone who's been doing it a bit longer mm. and has a bit more experience with these so-called rules. So, yeah, that does stand in contrast to what we've just been saying about how we should use these really strong yeah. verbs. Yeah, but again, that is a rule that sometimes I could see reason for breaking on an occasional basis. Mm. And I think that's the choice that we're making here. And I certainly don't always use said. I think any rule that you use religiously is going to be problematic because there will be times when it's appropriate. I think that what we're trying to avoid here is we're trying to avoid the distraction that you were describing. Yeah, and each of these rules of writing is really there to help a a writer identify what are the common mistakes Mm. that you can fall into when you're writing. I think what's helpful about the rules is that if you're new to writing and you do follow these religiously, you'll actually improve a lot pretty quickly. And it's not till you've sort of mastered the art that then you can go back and decide, okay, now I have the skill to determine that it is actually appropriate to break the rule here and it's going to improve my writing to do so and not harm it. I do think these rules are incredibly helpful. They've helped me a lot. And uh, I think the adverb one in particular, it's sort of a subtle one. And it's something that's not, I guess, obvious when you come to your writing. And I think that if you wrote something and made the edit with that in mind, you would instantly see it, your writing improve. Each episode, Amanda and I take turns recommending each other books or movies that we may not have chosen for ourselves. It's a segment we call Get Wrecked. Today's recommendation comes from a listener. Yes, M. M's recommendation for today is the movie The Whale, which came out last year, starring Brendan Fraser. And I think it won an Oscar, or Brendan Fraser won the Oscar, didn't he? For Brendan best Fraser actor. won uh, Best Actor. His first Oscar. And I think it's fair to say it was considered Oscar bait. I mean, it was one of these movies where everyone just thought, well, that's a shoe in Like, no, everybody go home. Like, Brendan's going to get it. Mm. So... What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like he deserved the Oscar for his performance? Yeah, I think all, I think all of the performances in this movie, just about, yeah. were great. Yeah, and they really were. His especially. Legitimately know. deserved that Oscar. Yeah, for sure. More than Will Smith for whatever he won last year. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't seen much of Brendan Fraser really since, well, in my mind, since has been kind of the early time. 2000s when he was – in the Mummy and George of the Jungle, mm. and I think he's been famously absent from yeah. Hollywood for a while, and there's been reasons for that. And you can go Google that if you're interested in why that's been the case. What I think is really interesting is that the movie itself wasn't up for Best Picture, mm. and I'm wondering how. I mean, I wonder what the stats are on that. You imagine Best Picture and Best Actor go yeah. together, or Best Actress go together most of the time. I would think. Maybe I'm wrong on that mm. one, but this one wasn't nominated for Best Picture. This is this is a hard movie to justify as a Best Picture contender because mm. it's not really a movie movie. It's no, not it's a visual not. experience in any way. It's no, it's hard to argue that it had amazing cinematography mm. or anything like that. So I think that's fair and, you know, I think it's also fair because I would classify The Whale as the feel-bad movie of the year. So it's won that prize from me. It is the most depressing movie I have seen at the cinema in possibly ever. I consider that a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, no, please. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of um, unpack it a little bit. There's a lot to talk about here. It's a, it's quite the movie. Yeah. So I think we mentioned in the intro to this, in the last episodes that the director is Darren Aronofsky, 
I mean, he's won the Oscar before, I believe, for Black Swan yep. uh, a few years ago. And this is a little bit of an unexpected movie from him. And when I think of his movies, I think of kind of a much more visual experience. A lot of different elements, visual elements mm. kind of coming together. Well, Black um, Swan, if that's an example, and that's the only one I know of, he's looking at yeah. the images you've got up there. I mean, that was very visual. And the whale is very much just what you see is what yeah, you get. Yeah, it is. In fact, I would say that one of the core themes of the whale is, you know, raw, unvarnished truth telling. Yeah. Um, and so that's very much how it was filmed too. Yeah, I think visually in its setting, in its characters, uh, it, it is based on a play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's obvious when you yeah. see it because it's all set in one room effectively. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's that's very much one of the hallmarks of a play. And we did we did another not that long ago, Harvey, which was mm-hmm. based on a play as well. And I, I do think you can pick it when oh, you yeah. see well, these watching ones. this, I didn't know anything about it going in and, and – you know, 15 minutes in, I was thinking, is this based on a play? Like, mm. it's, Because it's, it's, all, a, it's very dialogue heavy. It's very There's not a lot of heavy. action. Yes. Um, I wonder how some of the elements were changed because there were some scenes that were on his laptop, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Um, and relied on kind of the camera and mm. seeing the reactions of his students. I wonder how that was actually done. I mean, they may well have had changed. a screen in the, yeah, you know, who knows? I don't know. I haven't seen the play. And, I, you know. yeah. and the other thing that um, kind of gives away as a play is that there are only six characters. Yeah. It's a really small group of people. Mm. It's shot in a 4-3 aspect ratio, which is like that old TV. Okay ratio where it's not a widescreen mm-hmm. movie. so Well, you don't need it, do you? No, I think- It's not I mean, enough happening for you to need to- Yeah, and that's often a, something that filmmakers do to really amplify this sense of claustrophobia okay. that you get. So I think another recent movie from 2018, I think it was, The Lighthouse, yep. about basically two people living in a lighthouse was filmed in black and white and the same aspect ratio really just to emphasise the fact that they're they're shut in together in that small confined mm. space. And here that he's confined in yeah. this room, he's mm. stuck in this very small space. Mm. All right. So there are six characters, as I said, mm-hmm. uh, the main character being Brendan Fraser's character, Charlie, who is morbidly, morbidly obese. obese. Yep. So I think the weight is 272 kilos. And he's basically a, a shut-in. I mean, mm. he does have some mobility, mm-hmm. but he's a shut-in in his apartment. Yeah, by choice. By choice. Um, there's his friend Liz, basically, who is a, is the sister of his deceased, deceased yeah. partner, partner, gay partner. Mm. Uh, and they introduce his his homosexuality in the first scene pretty graphically, oh, I would say. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Masturbating vigorously in front of a, a laptop, which is a bit of a, I guess Very that kind of set the stage for the show, for the movie, in the way that it is so confronting. In Absolutely. Its yeah. Visuals. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, th- I feel like it didn't get worse from there. I feel like that was, <laughs> that was probably the most confronting element of the movie, for yeah. me anyway. And yeah. just very surprising, I would say. Like, it's hard to get surprised by stuff in 2023. Mm. And, it's, and it did surprise me, you yeah. know. We've sort of seen it all. But the choice to start a film with that scene mm. is a brave one. Yeah. Um, and interesting. Like, I can't, oh God, and now I'm just imagining that in a play. You know, you've yeah. turned up to see a play. I don't know if that's a feature of the play. I but I would be I very confronted if I'd turned up to a play and, you know, you're sitting a couple of rows away from this person. I think it's a great opening moment. Like I know it's it's confronting and it's very strange, but I think it really establishes a lot about the character, mm. uh, his situation, mm. 
um, and also gives that viewer that expectation that they're going to be challenged and shocked. Mm, that's this- true. And it's it's very voyeuristic. And I mean, yeah. it's very, I guess it's very real, for, yeah. you know, and like that's the kind of thing that I suppose it's it's giving you that deep intimacy with his situation. Like you're very much like a fly on the wall in his life immediately. Mm. You're not removed from it. You're right in that scene yeah. from the get-go. There are other graphic scenes that follow. Uh, they don't really hold back on the depictions of him. Um, first of all, just living in that environment, mm. the way he struggles with mobility and, and struggles with getting around. You know, you see him in the shower, you see him kind of half naked moving mm. about the house. It doesn't come across like at no point does it seem like that that is I guess exploitative uh, to well me. some people would argue with that it's actually a huge criticism of the film oh, at it? the moment yeah and especially of his Oscar win there's this big fat phobia argument you know first of all why are you hiring George of the Jungle to play this man and second of all why are you choosing to depict the life of this man in the most graphically unfortunate, you know, circumstances. Like you're really focusing on all the downsides of his situation Mm. and there's not a lot to redeem that. I don't know. I don't know. Look, in general, I I don't agree with that criticism. I think that showing the the real downsides and being honest in in a depiction is what movies and art in general needs to be about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree very strongly with you. I think the argument that this movie is fat phobic is – just wrong, basically, mm. because it's not at all. It's the opposite. I believe it's real. Yep. I believe that there's issues that he's facing are real for many people. In his case, there is a very strong link between his mental health and his physical health, mm-hmm. and I think that's true for literally every person on the planet. This yep. is not con- confined to obesity. And so I don't think, as you said, it's not like gratuitous. It's not like they're it's been shown to make fun of him mm-hmm. or to present this view of morbidly obese people, you know, having to live at home alone because they don't deserve to be out of the house or something. It's not about that at all. Yeah. It's it's showing this person in and his truth and how his life really is and showing the challenges and I think being very real and raw and honest about the mental health situation that he is in. So it's not even really about his physical health, even though that's what it's manifested as in his life. It's really about his mental health and his relationships. So let's, I think let's get into what the plot is about and Mm. what his character is about. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're introduced to him at the start and through his interactions, we learn uh, piece by piece, and I think in, in a very um, well-written way about what his past is mm. and what he's dealing with and what uh, what has put him in this situation, which yeah. is what the what the movie is really about. Yeah, they really just drip feed that through, don't they? Yeah. You, they, they don't just dump it on you at the start. You're left to wonder mm-hmm. and then eventually it becomes clear. So, and his history, he used to be married in a heterosexual relationship mm-hmm. with, with his wife. Uh, they've had a daughter together. And then he left because he fell in love with a a man Mm. and that man then died by suicide later in life. Um, And since then, basically, he's been reclusive reclusive and and, uh, using eating as a coping mechanism, Mm. um, as a, I guess, a self-destructive mechanism 
for dealing with what's gone on in his life because there is not only the death of his partner, there's also the loss of his daughter that's Mm. come out of that and the fact that he has no control over her life. But what I find really interesting about the angle that this movie takes is that relationship with the daughter. So, you know, the obvious choice would be to sort of show him as being, I guess, um, not by choice separated from his daughter because of his choice to be in this same-sex relationship that therefore, you know, for example, his mean ex-wife has decided to get in the way of that relationship with his daughter, but it's really him who has removed himself by choice from his daughter's life. Mm. And I found that really interesting, that dynamic. He wasn't a straightforward good guy. No, not at all. That things have happened to. He was a flawed character and I think he as a character recognises where his flaws are Mm. and part of this whole thing, in fact, right up to the ending is him trying to seek some sort of redemption for the, Mm. the decisions he's made. Which, you know, frustrated me watching it because you see his daughter who's played by Sadie Sink who Mm -hmm. people will know from Stranger Things as Max or the one who had to listen to Kate Bush over and over (laughs) and over again to save her life. Um, Yeah, it's like as if he's luring her back into his life Mm. for his own gain again, you know, and she's very clued on to this. She doesn't want a bar of it basically. Mm. She's going to use him in return, which I think good for you (laughs) because honestly, like as a father – He's been completely absent and completely neglectful of her or so it seems based on the movie. And so I think what right do you have to come back into her life? I think the story is complicated and I don't think we see it all play out. So we know that he he obviously was the one that left and he acknowledges that and everyone acknowledges that. But to some extent, his his wife has also kept him out of the daughter's life, and I, th- I think rightly as a as but a defence oh, mechanism. I don't for herself, know. He plays that as such a victim, though. You know, like it feels like at I'm any point he could have reached one out. Way or another, I'm saying that I, that there is probably a complex dynamic there. Yeah, that everyone is involved in, and we see in that scene with uh, he and his wife Mary, where they're kind of confessing to each other and kind of mm. reconciling a little bit. Mm. That there was a bit of give and take on both sides. I think the great thing about this movie is that all the characters are realistic and flawed Mm. and, and complex in that way. So even his friend Liz, who's basically an angel, a Mm -hmm. saint, you know, she comes and cares for him. And Liz is also the sister of his partner. And so they have, I guess, that loss in common, but in a way she's enabled him to be self-destructive because she comes and meets his every need, basically yep. brings him huge buckets of fried chicken, and which I think is beautiful in its own way because mm. really she's just honouring his choices. But at the same time, were it not for her, you know, he those choices wouldn't be quite so easy for him to make. And by no means am I blaming her for the choices that he's made that lead him into the situation he's in, but... I guess in a sense there is that kind of conflict there, you know, that she is, she's his best friend, you know, she's only there for him. I mean, I don't know what he brings to that friendship, honestly, most mm. of the time. Um, and it seems like and it's almost also, like she's got the need yeah. just to care for, and that that's feeding her psychological damage yeah. from what's happened with her brother. That's right. And largely she's there. I mean, she considers him a friend and she remembers how he used to be, mm. but she's also there for the memory of her own brother mm. who you know, who she's lost and who was in love with this person. Mm. I, th- I think kind of along the lines of what you're saying and as I was thinking about the themes in this movie and how they break apart, I think there is a central theme here around 
different ways of dealing with trauma mm. and also how that there is a balance there because obviously Charlie deals with trauma by eating. It's like a self-destructing thing. Mm. But obviously eating in itself is not a bad thing. We, mm. we need to eat. It mm. has a positive part and it has a negative part. Most people have some comfort eating going on. <laughs> yep. and, and, and Liz, as you say, I, I think the way that she deals with trauma is by helping people. Mm. And so she's helping Charlie. She's a nurse too, isn't she? She's a nurse. Yeah. She's helping Charlie. But there is also the negative part that she's helping him For destroy himself. She's well. helping him destroy herself. And it's for selfish reasons in a way because she feels like she... She wants yes. it serves her to help him yeah. as well, although it's presented very much as completely selfless on her part. And even his daughter Ellie, so her way of dealing with trauma and what has happened to her life is really by hating everyone mm. and by trying to be destructive, mm. and that's a negative thing. But we also find that in trying to destroy um, the the missionary Thomas, she's actually helped him mm. discover something about mm. himself and and fix his life. So I think it's about that balance between how people deal with trauma and how that those things can have positive and negative aspects. Definitely. I mean, I think as a society, we place a lot of emphasis on, you know, don't worry, be happy. Like, mm. you know, you have to sort of mentally rise above every challenge that's presented to you. But when you have been through trauma, it's actually healing to to really feel the feelings that yeah. you have. And I'm just thinking too, um, I was watching very recently with my daughters, the movie Inside Out, which yep. is a Disney Pixar film all about feelings basically and a um, bit of a subplot there is that the, the character who is a feeling sadness you know we come to find that she actually has a role to play so initially joy is the main character and joy's just trying to make everything okay and joy's just trying to make sure you know the whole ship's running and everybody's happy um, and trying to shut down sadness mm -hmm. but really there's that element where sometimes we need to feel that and that's where empathy can come in as well and where these feelings of dealing with stuff instead of just brushing it aside. And I can see that that's what happens here too. Mm. Inside Out, from memory, did not start with a, a gay masturbation <laughs> scene. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, the closest I can think of is Wally. You know, the scene yeah, where they're yeah. all on that spaceship? Yes. Well, <laughs> it was a little different, but yeah, there are parallels there. Yeah. Okay, so we've spoken about Charlie and Ellie, the daughter, Liz, the friend, mm. and Mary, the mother, who was also Hazel in Synecdoche, New York, which I enjoyed. Mm. There are two more characters. There is uh, Thomas, the missionary, and he's got, he's got a, a bit of a weird role mm. um, in the movie. And I, I, I never quite felt like it's he fit tangential. in that, that well mm. um, into, I guess, the Which overall. I guess is kind of his character like he just doesn't fit in well yeah. at all. <laughs> he's well he's not part of the family. I think I think part of what he's there for is to provide a means for like exposition to the mm. audience because otherwise why would these people be talking about what's happened in the past mm. to each other. Mm -hmm. So he's there as a, a means of learning about the um, about the family and what the past is so that we know about it. But he's got a very unusual story. He's left his church, the New New Life Church because he really wanted to make change in the world. And in doing so, he stole some money from the church mm. and left his family and, and now has been kind of freelance, a freelance um, missionary <laughs> in Idaho, mm. uh, of all places. And 
we find out via uh, Ellie that he's, you know, he's not what he seems to be. Mm. That whole plot line was a little bit weird to me. Mm. Um, so there, th- that does kind of come back to this theme of, well, doing good and sometimes doing good can mean doing a bad thing, mm. like taking money, mm. lying to people. You've got this this guy, Charlie, who's dying and needs support and all you're trying to do is tell him about God. Yeah. Um, and you're not really helping him in any way. I think no, well, you're harming him, I guess, because yeah. you're, you're basically asking him to repent for the love of his life. Yeah, of that's right. Which, which I would argue is what he's kind of already doing you know he's punishing himself already for that relationship and how that ended you know he feels i guess somehow responsible and that's why he's yeah and the last character which i actually liked the mm, inclusion the of this dude. is that is dan the pizza guy <laughs> and you just get like a little bit of him throughout the movie mm. just as a recurring well, he's kind a bit of, of humanity isn't he yeah like he's he's a nice character he's just kind of i don't know well, he, he appears every day, every evening, mm. delivering the pizza because every every evening Charlie eats two whole pizzas mm. for, for dinner. And this guy knocks on his door. He's like, I've been coming for a while. My name's Dan. And they develop this kind of relationship where, I guess, Dan knows that there's someone in there who mm. might have some sort of problem that he wants to find out. He's asking, are you okay? Um, and Charlie really just doesn't want to expose himself, doesn't want to mm. reveal who he is. And then finally on the last day, Dan, the pizza guy, waits outside to see Charlie come out. And the look on his face, he just sees him and he runs away. Like you you see that he's realised mm. that he's also been enabling him this whole mm. time. Mm. And I think there's kind of a horror from his perspective of, because he's a genuine caring guy who's asking after his, mm. after his health, but he's actually been contributing to this. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. It was a bit of a weird extra character in there, but I, I liked it. I don't know. I mean, really, if you're talking about Charlie's life, that's all the people that he has any contact with. Mm. So the pizza guy is actually crucial to his life. Yeah. He's a very key character in his day-to-day life. That is true. And, mm. yeah, part of his very limited human interaction. And there's also his students, of course. Mm-hmm. He's a teacher, literature teacher, I would say. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't reveal himself to his students at all. He has pretends that his camera's broken, which we've all done on work <laughs> meetings before. Um, <laughs> Mine's usually because I can't be bothered putting makeup on, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> Coming into where the movie ends up, he realises that what is missing, I think, is honesty in mm. his relationships, honesty about himself, the way that people interact and he encourages his his students to like write something that's actually real. real. Now listen, I have a little bone to pick with this movie and I want your opinion. Mm-hmm. The essay. Okay. So there's an essay that Charlie reads and it basically gives him life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is he uses it like a bloody EpiPen. Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's shit. <laughs> it's my opinion. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's just this is where we get to the writing aspect, I guess. Of like, is that just bad writing? No. It just felt. But but that wasn't oh, the point. The point was I, that his daughter wrote I it. know that. Yeah. Right. And so, and that was pretty obvious partway through that it was yeah. going to be revealed that his daughter was the author of that essay and that's why it was meaningful to him. And But he used it as this kind of shining beacon of this is the truth. And I just didn't feel like it was really that well, good. Guess, and I. No. I mean, it's clear that it's his connection with his daughter that he's feeling there. But I don't know. I just had a lot of trouble buying that, I guess. 
So he received that essay via the daughter's mother mm-hmm. uh, four years before this is set, which I don't. Which I was thinking, how how old was she when she was asked to write an mm. essay about Moby Dick, like twelve, mm, which, is, which is a bit un, unusual. Yeah. But but um, again, this is what I'm saying. I wasn't buying it. So this was his last point where he actually got to see a little bit about what his daughter was thinking because that came across pretty honest, even if if poorly written. She was saying that, well, the parts of Moby Dick that seemed to be just thrown in there as random facts about whales were just a distraction because the author knew his story was so sad he was trying to save you from the story. And isn't there something a little bit about like that in, you know, uh, in life? And he felt that that was a really an honest thing, that his daughter was connecting with this uh, with this piece of writing mm. and him being someone mm. who appreciates that, I think he felt a connection to his daughter and he found that like a really profound thing. So I don't think it's really so much about w- whether it was a good insight or whether it was a, um, well, a or whether it was profound. This is what I'm saying yeah. though. Like he finds it profound. Yes. I don't think he finds it profound. I think he finds it honest and, and part of his daughter that, that he knows is still there mm. because his interaction with his daughter is that she's completely detached from the world, mm. hates everything, won't engage on any level. I mean, he asks her to write this, write something down in, in a notebook and she comes back with like, I hate the world, I hate everyone. Mm. And he's disappointed until he realises that it's a haiku yeah. and that she, he, she, she is actually engaging on some level. Mm. And that essay that she wrote is the same kind of reminder that even though she is struggling through this whole life that he's created for her, mm there is still some possibility that she could come back to it because she's written this essay. All of that is wonderful and all of that would be fine if the essay wasn't so shit. <laughs> well, if she and to be fair, 12, she's 12. Okay, if my daughter wrote that at 12, I guess I'd be pretty proud. <laughs> all right, fine. Mm. I don't know if I'd use it as an EpiPen, but yes. When you're dying, just read me the essay. Yeah, but that's my point. Like, yeah. I don't know. I just I thought it was know. a bit much. And I, because we're talking honesty mm. and because that's the whole point of it and it did just feel a bit disconnected to me. Yeah. And so I wanted to feel it because I, mm. I really wanted to feel the feelings they were trying to make me feel. And I, I instead I was just like, righto. <laughs> but I will say that there there is something I think that is – that doesn't translate to the screen. Like in a play, there's a element of melodrama yeah. that has to be in there that mm. kind of, and that's that, that is that element where you need something to be a little bit over the top, a little mm. bit symbolic. That's true. And when you translate to that, to the screen, it might not, might not work. All right. I'll give you that. All right. So if we're talking honesty, then what is your honest opinion of this film? And so I'm getting the vibe that you liked it. I mean, you do love a sad, sad, sad story. Yeah, my expectations, as I said, going in were for a kind of a, a bigger movie mm. in, in some aspects. And this was a very small story. Mm. I think it was very well executed. The, all of the performances were, were great. The The themes were well, you know, it was well written. It was a, a, an established play. I don't know anything about the play, but they were working from something that was already working in some way or another. So it all came together pretty well. I loved the honesty in the movie, the way that it didn't shirk from just showing something that was awful and graphic and mm. disturbing. But, you know, overall as a, as a movie, it's not one that I will be thinking about for years to come or that really kind of moved me in any in a, in a way that will be like forever with me, I think. so. Mm. I, I felt know. very moved the day I saw it. I felt yeah. really down. <laughs> like yeah. it really did just put a massive dampener on my day, I have to mm. say. What I thought was really interesting too is that when I watched this, I was immediately reminded of What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Mm-hmm. So have you seen What's Eating Gilbert not. Grape? 
So I guess because I was thinking it's got some similar themes and what's eating Gilbert Grape is so much better. Okay. <laughs> so I actually rewatched what's eating Gilbert Grape yeah. last night. So that's got Johnny Depp and Leonardo DiCaprio who is playing a, a severely handicapped 18-year-old and Johnny Depp's the older brother who is basically his full-time carer and then the family. And I guess the immediate and obvious link between this and the whale is that um, Gilbert Grape's mother, Bonnie Grape, is morbidly obese as Mm -hmm. well and doesn't leave the house. And basically the same weight as Brendan Fraser. Interestingly, there was no prosthetics and CGI involved. She was the weight, you know, that she was. But a lot of similarities in themes. But watching it again was actually a really interesting experience because – You know, there's some scenes in it where Johnny Depp is like holding up the neighbourhood kids so they can peer in the window at his mother and like Mm. make fun of her basically. And I guess that's his little way he gets a bit of payback to his mum because of the life that has been created for him by some of her choices. And I just think it's really funny that back then in the 90s when that film was made, her size was probably more shocking. Mm. And although Brendan Fraser's size in The Whale is shocking, and it's shown in in very graphic detail, like the way that he struggles to move around um, and his health concerns that are come as a result of his um, weight. I feel like the reaction to somebody that big now is probably quite different to how it would have been. We've been desensitized to it, I think. There's there's shows like My Six Hundred Pound Life. Mm. And, you know, well, it's just in the a media. much bigger issue yeah. around the world now yeah. for people to be morbidly obese yeah. um, and to carry a lot more weight. And I mean, there's, and I mean, this is probably just a sign of the filming at the time, too, but there's a scene in What's Eating Gilbert Grape where she comes out of the police station and like the whole town is just, you know, they've stopped on their little push bikes and people have like walking their dog have just stopped in the street to stare at mm. her in this kind of real cheesy way. Um, but very much a point and stare and laugh kind of thing. And yeah. I just don't think that that, w- like it just didn't ring true at all now that that would mm. be people's reaction. You know, I was talking about how it's hard to shock us in 2023. There was some scenes in What's Eating Gilbert Grape where one of his friends, you know, there's some implied necrophilia, oh. some <laughs> pedophilia, <laughs> and it's all treated very lightheartedly and a big funny joke. So that's a bit alarming (laughs) (laughs) looking back now that that was just a big funny joke. But, yeah, just a lot of parallels. And, I mean, what I guess the biggest parallel is that in both cases the issue has come about because of the suicide of a loved one. Mm. And so in What's Eating Gilbert Grape it was his father and obviously we've already talked about Charlie's partner and that that was the catalyst for this change. Yeah, and I I think, like, whether it's food or – alcohol or mm. drugs, it's, it's really the same thing. It's like all the you, same thing. You feel bad and you want to just have something good yeah. for a moment that mm. takes you out of it. Mm. And, I mean, some people will just drink. Some people will just have, like, will eat. Some mm. people will take drugs. Yeah. Or some people do other things that, you know, may not be that destructive but actually are destructive, mm. um, you know, with their, like they might just – run all the time, or, you know, as a random example. <laughs> Ruin their knees. Oh, yeah, those people. What jerks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just take take some 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 healthy activity yeah, to an to obsess- the obsessive point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure like we've probably got a scale here, a spectrum of 
most healthy to least healthy yeah, ways to deal with your issues. Problematic um, and, you know, jumping from relationship to relationship or all sorts of yeah, other ways that exactly. people might deal with that stuff. And it's very human. Mm. So I don't, for that reason, I don't see the whale as being fat phobic. I see it as being very, mm. just a very human story. Um, I think the argument was that it was fat phobic because Brendan Fraser is not 272 kilos. Um, and he did his best to gain yeah. weight and still had to wear, a, what was it, 136 kilo, something like that, yeah. suit. Yeah. Mate, full of marbles and, yeah. you know, weight um, and plus CGI to make his movements seem less like he was wearing a suit. So, I mean, there's that criticism, but he's just won the Oscar for Best Actor. Mm. You'd be hard-pressed to find an actor who could have delivered that performance and it really did hinge on his performance because without that strength of that performance, the movie would have been nothing. So I, I feel like that's a bit of a non-argument really. It's like an, it's a non-argument, show us an alternative. But it's a non-argument because the whole point of acting yes. is that you get someone who is not that thing to be that thing. And it's a big thing now, of course, because of um, – trans rights as mm. well and that that's a criticism that gets made a lot of the time in the tv show euphoria mm -hmm. uh, we have a trans character who is played by a trans actor yep. also in one of my faves neighbors yep. um before it got the boot although i think it's getting rebooted thank god um there was a trans actor playing a trans character yep. there too and it's it is quite rare um and i appreciate that those opportunities exist and that we are moving towards just there being more trans actors who mm -hmm. have jobs to go to, you know what I mean? Like yep. that this is something that's just not a big deal. But I don't see an issue with a trans actor uh, playing a straight, you know, whichever gender. Yeah. I mean, Brendan Fraser's not gay either. He's an actor. That's the whole point. Exactly. And I think we face this as writers too, the exact same criticism, just a little bit of a different flavour of it. Like if you're not of a particular cultural background that you really shouldn't be writing about mm. that because that's totally disingenuous and it's not your place to do that. And I completely disagree with that. I mean, I think there are certainly instances where you could easily argue that that would be inappropriate to do or if someone is doing it in a way that's offensive, specifically offensive because they've got it all wrong, for example. But that's what writers do. You know, we use yeah. our imaginations and it's and you do go back to that base level of like, okay, as a woman, am I then not allowed to write about men? Yeah. Am I not allowed to write about women who are older than me because I haven't had that experience? And of course it becomes a ridiculous argument very quickly. I think if you are writing with genuine intent, if you do research necessary to make the story seem real for people, then by all means, why should you not? You need to write with sensitivity and you need to, to research things that you don't know about. Mm. Absolutely. But it's writing shouldn't be, or any kind of expression, acting, whatever, it shouldn't be about your identity because then it pigeonholes you into what you are mm. as, a, as an identity. And, and that shuts down representation. It shuts down representation, it shuts down creativity, and there's just there's no need for it. I'm just, going to go out on a limb and say it's completely stupid. Like you should not be insisting that creatives just box themselves in really in any way like that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely anybody who does that and goes to the extreme with it, like writes as really from the perspective of a character from a culture, for example, that they know nothing about or a trans character when they have no direct experience of that and don't even really know anyone who's who's been through those same issues, they are taking that risk as an, mm. as an author on themselves 
to do that in a way that's going to come across as genuine. But I think if you're an author in that position, then you want to find out what you can and speak to people who are in that situation. Obviously. And if you're doing this in the right way, then you would, right? Mm. But you you can also just use your imagination. You know, I don't think it's that far-fetched for me, for example. I don't have any experience um, of a trans lifestyle and I don't have any very close friends or family who have been through that, but I still get it. You know what I mean? I'm not an idiot. Like I can see what happens. And although I have not experienced it myself, I can imagine that experience just as I might imagine what it might be like to be a fighter pilot. And, you know, and if I might need to go and do some research about, you know, the controls on a jet, for example, to make my scene seem more realistic, by the same token, if I felt there were gaps in my knowledge that went beyond just human understanding and went more to the specifics of something to do with that life, Mm. then I should do that. But otherwise, I'm just free to use my imagination, I feel. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there is one uh, area where that kind of um, thinking or that kind of view is justified. For example, if there are zero trans people being employed as actors and you're getting non-trans people to play trans roles, then there's an argument for saying, well, we need more trans people to be accepted as actors Mm. In those roles, mm. you know, it's kind of a catch twenty two because you need more roles and you need more yeah. actors, and they sort of feed off each other. And you, it's not ever going to be an exact sum there of the right person in the right role. But you know, but if we're moving towards a world where that's more acceptable, then that's only got to yeah. be a good. So thing. there's, I guess, the creator or the artist versus what you're talking about, and you might mm. say there's not enough trans people as actors, or you might say there's not enough uh, women directors, or there's not enough indigenous writers, for example. Mm. But that's, I think that is a separate discussion to the content of the actual art that they're producing. Mm. And I think we need to keep those two things separately. Absolutely promote um, groups that don't have the the level of access or representation mm. or uh, a foot in the door to industries that have been exclusionary in the past and we want to improve that. But I think the content of the art is a separate discussion. Mm. And I think you can criticise art if it is disingenuous. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the author or director or actor, they're exposing themselves to that criticism and you will never make everyone happy. You are bound to offend people no matter what you do. But if you are going it with the best intentions and do the work, I I don't think that really those criticisms are justified beyond just personal opinion. Another little interesting tie-in with What's Eating Gilbert Grape is the fact that in both The Whale and in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, they both have this scene where the parent – the morbidly obese parent stands up and walks yeah. for their child. And it's this it's like a pivotal moment yeah, in yeah. each film. And I just found that interesting, like that that was just like the most they could do as a parent. I mean, we look at mm. we look at Charlie and it's safe to say he's failed as a father up to this point and that's what he's trying to make amends for. And in What's Eating Gilbert Grape too, I mean, Bonnie is completely checked out at parenting. They're the ones parenting her really. Like yep. they, they tuck her in at night and everything. So it's just interesting that each of them use this moment of getting up and walking to, I guess, symbolise like, I don't know, the struggle. Yeah, I think the ending of this movie, it was very sudden. Mm. But also not. I mean, you've been waiting for it the whole film. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. I think it was earned. It was very quick, like the the way that it happened. You know, he stands up, he goes to his daughter, he has that moment with her of realising that he has maybe shifted her 
mm. in a way towards realizing what she could be capable of and, and trying to undo kind of the harm that he's done. And then he has that, uh, that moment of just, it's the word apotheosis of, of just becoming fulfilled mm. and essentially probably dying at that moment, it's, it's, really. It's like I the end of his story. he died, yeah. There's a flashback to the moment where he's on the beach. Like the last time he was on the beach, he's actually walking. Which is why we assume he died because it's one of those classic flashbacks before yeah. you die kind Everything of thing. Everything goes white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see um, your whole life flash before your eyes yeah, kind and, of thing. And he's, he's realised his mission, you know, basically. Mm. The walking felt a little bit, to me, like a little bit forced because mm. he couldn't walk. Like he's, he tried, mm. he, he couldn't do it. Mm. Like the symbolism there was like now in this moment, this final moment, I can finally overcome mm. and, and do this for my daughter and, and, you know, do the, it was a little bit like, mm, okay. But then but, same again for Bonnie, Bonnie Grape. Yeah. So there's actually two scenes where she walks. So there's one where she has to go and rescue Leonardo DiCaprio's character, mm. Arnie from the police station and she gets up and she gets in the car and she goes to the police station and basically tears him a new one when she gets there. And it's a very moving scene because it's the first time she's moved and she's only done it to go and rescue her son, basically. Yeah. And then towards the end of the film, when in a similar way, she's kind of, we've had this nice moment with Gilbert who's, you know, reconnected with her a bit. He's introduced his girlfriend to her to sort of basically show that he's no longer ashamed of his mother. And then she decides she's ready. She's going to walk up the stairs mm. and she's going to go to this bed that her daughter has made up for her previously rather than sleep on the couch. And so she does that. She goes upstairs and then she dies in bed basically. So in both situations, it's like this walking, like they've finally mm. done it, which is really an argument if you're morbidly obese to just not walk because <laughs> you might die. <laughs> So, yeah, it's just interesting that they've chosen this. Yeah. I, like, I think also, why, why choose that? Well, going back to the fact that it was a play, mm. like that is something you can demonstrate on the stage because you can't show that flashback mm. on a stage. You mm. can't show like the white light. And then, well, maybe there was just a mm. white light mm. and that's over or curtains, but it's showing I'm finally making, you know, having mm. this step towards actually turning my life around and being the father that I want to be, but I, I couldn't be. Mm. And maybe there is supposed to be some ambiguity in that final scene, as in that he's standing up. Maybe he could make a change in his life. I think that from what we've seen, it's the more reasonable interpretation is he's probably going to die. Like that's mm. the last thing he can do. Mm. But there is maybe like a little bit of hope there that he's come that far. He's done the thing he couldn't do. He's um, he's almost ready to change. He's almost ready. Like there could be like a movie after that where he turns his life around and becomes a healthy person. Yeah, it's not that kind of movie though, is it? I don't think that's the case, but there is a moment of ambiguity there. You call it ambiguity. Uh, maybe hopefulness. Maybe just you don't quite see him die. Maybe things turned out for the better. All right, we'll just we'll let you believe. Are you that, making? Are you letting me be the hopeful one, the positive one in this? That's weird, isn't it? And it's weird. So that was the whale. Thanks, Em, for yeah. Thanks a lot. Recommending. Thanks a lot. <laughs> no, I mean she wanted to know what we thought. I mm -hmm. think um, I think she found it confronting too. I mean, certainly it's interesting, and it's yeah. unlike other things that I've seen with the exception of what's in Gilbert Grape. Yeah. But, yeah, thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. And if anyone else wants to give us a recommendation, please feel free to do so. You can send it to contact at notquiterightpodcast.com and all the links are on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com, so check it out. So now I know we've done like a few movies in a row and really mm. we're a writing podcast or yep. so we say. We should be focused on, 
you would think books and so on, right? Well, no, forget it, right? Mm. Forget it. I'd like you to listen to some music. Ooh. Yes, and it's music that is very much for word nerds, I would say. It's my favourite band. Anyone who knows me will know immediately who I'm talking about. I would like you to listen to the latest album by the Bare Naked Ladies. Mm -hmm. It's called Detour de Force. It was released, you know, pandemic times. And I think it's really fun. I think they have a really interesting way of playing with words um, that you don't always see in music. And I would like to see what you think. Awesome. That should be interesting. I'll be interested to see what you think. Mm. And um, no pressure. Like, they are my favourite and I will cry if you say anything negative whatsoever. What was the What was the Bare Naked Lady song that everyone remembers from, like, 2005? Yes. Yeah, so, there's a couple that everyone would yeah. know. So, it's not 2005, even older. And it might be oh, yeah. 97, 98, yeah. something like that is One Week. Oh, yeah. Chickity yeah. China, the Chinese yeah, chicken. Right. Yes, everybody knows that one. And that's how I even fell in love with them. Even my that one. Yeah. Well, good. Wow, yeah. you're educating them well. Very they good. They play it on the radio a lot. Okay. Well, yes, because now they're pl- – and in, in supermarkets now mm. because we're old now and yeah, they play our right. music. So one week is one that everyone would know and the other one that a lot of people would know is the Big Bang Theory theme. Oh, yeah. Um, and there were, you know, back in their heyday, I'd like to take you all back to a time when everybody was watching Dawson's Creek because during that time they also had a song that featured – I don't want to that's not them, uh, but they did have at, at least one song feature in Dawson's Creek and, and probably a few other places here and there as well, I would say. One Week has certainly appeared in films. Um, so in Canada, they're royalty and I've loved them since the 90s and all of their albums are different. If you get excited, you can go back and back listen to some of their other stuff as well because there's a lot of difference there. Like I don't think you'll ever get mm. bored. So I'd encourage all our listeners as well, when you finish this episode – if you're on Spotify or if you've got some other, you know, platform that you use to listen to music, search for Detour de Force by the Bare Naked Ladies. Have a listen and then you can sort of join in the conversation when we talk about it next time. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Just a reminder to go to our website, notquiterightpodcast.com and register for updates. Find out more about the Not Quite Right Prize for Flash Fiction, which is coming in July. While you're on the website, I just want you to go and check out our hilarious little avatars that we've got. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I showed mine to my daughters and they were like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's safe to say they are not particularly true to life. They're not particularly true to life, no. Go have a look and see what you think. Do they look like us? <laughs> well, how, how would people know? <laughs> um, <laughs> go have a look and tell us, is that how you envisage us? Because I can guarantee you, <laughs> you're going to be bitterly disappointed when you... <laughs> yeah, so if you turn up at Words on the Waves with these pictures... Yeah, looking, looking for us, for us no. good luck. Good luck. <laughs> and until next time, right on. Right on. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right. I thoroughly confused my brother and sister-in-law the other day because my brother-in-law's he's Irish and so he likes to be a bit cheeky. So he wears just shirts to be offensive. Oh, yeah. Like, and, but they're, they're usually a bit clever and funny. Um, one of his faves was that one you've probably seen. It's like it just says 
Melbourne, but it's a picture of Sydney. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so I saw this shirt online. I said, oh, I'm going to get you this. And I sent a picture. But they were so confused. <laughs> and they were just really polite about it. Oh, yeah, that looks like good shirt. Thanks. But it just said, had re, like R-E, big, yeah. and then next to it, like, so it, just the littler words, cycle, use, new, and think. So it was like recycle, reuse, renew, rethink. But if you read it as an acrostic down. Cycle, use, new, new think. think. Take your time. Is it a pronunciation thing or a word no, thing? No, it's, it's an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? Oh, you mean the first letter? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, okay, I get it. 